What does it even mean? Your pursuit of gut health is probably taking you down a rabbit hole of misinformation, useless concoctions, and false promises. So this is where this uncensored podcast comes in. The gastroenterologist and his daughter is the first of its kind, bringing a specialist gastroenterologist and his daughter, yours truly, to help you navigate the world of all things gut health from mouth to bum and everything in between. Join me, Sandra McHale, gut health specialist dietitian and founder of Nutrition A to Z, and my father, Wagdi McHale, specialist gastroenterologist and internist, as we unpack the most talked about topics in gut health, covering both the medical and lifestyle aspects of all things gut, with a ton of comedy and fecal tete-a-tete. Right, let's get into it. In today's episode on Fertility from Within, I'm joined by Stephanie Velakis, who is an expert-certified fertility and pregnancy dietitian and nutritionist and founder of The Dietologist in Australia. Stephanie and her team of fertility and pregnancy dietitians are dedicated to excellence in nutrition for reproductive health concerns, fertility, and pregnancy. Her passion for nutrition in this space, which is really echoed in this episode, has truly grown from her experience helping clients online from around the world and also through her own personal experiences of navigating a diagnosis of endometriosis. The dietologist has been awarded multiple awards for their excellence in nutrition care, and Stephanie herself has also been recognized for her contributions in the fertility nutrition arena, such as being a finalist for the Dietitian of the Year Awards for 2020, 2021, and 2023. Stephanie also hosts the popular fertility health podcast, Fertility Friendly Food. I really hope you enjoy today's incredible episode with Stephanie as she truly believes every hopeful parent should have access to scientifically backed nutrition information to prepare their body prior to conception, support them through fertility treatments, pregnancy, and ultimately bringing home a healthy and happy baby. Stephanie, thank you so much for making the time to be on here. Thank you for having me. Excited to chat. And hey, by we, as in myself and my father, who is not here today because unfortunately he's caught up at clinic and with the logistics of trying to make things happen with three different time zones is a mission Mm. and a half. So listeners, Stephanie is based in Australia. I'm based in Switzerland and dad is in Dubai, but here we are. Before we get into it, and as we do with all our guests, I'd like our listeners to get to know you a little bit better. So Stephanie, if you were a vegetable, what vegetable would you be and why? I think a cherry tomato. And I think I would be a cherry tomato because it's one of my favorite things to eat. And it's quite ironic because when I was a child, I hated tomatoes and now I love them. (laughs) And my mom likes to remind me of that. Very regularly. But I think a cherry tomato because it kind of looks so smooth and nice on the outside and it looks like it's, you know, it contains something within. But then when you bite through, you get the little pop bang. And I feel like I'm a bit of like a jack in the box in, in that regard in terms of my personality. So I feel like perhaps I look a little bit more put together on the outside than what I am on the inside. And so. I would be a cherry tomato. <laughs> All right. I love that. Well, that sort of brings into the second question. If there's one food item you'd, you know, choose to eat for the rest of your life. What would it be? Probably feta cheese. Oh, interesting. I, I don't know if there is a day that goes, oh, it's rare the day that passes without feta cheese in my life. And so I'd feel like really upset if I couldn't eat it anymore. So I feel like by reverse, I would probably do something horrible to my blood pressure with all the salt. (laughs) Um, This is not a nutritious choice. It's a soul food choice. Maybe feta. Yeah. 
it's not very practical. Something sensible would be like bread. You can have <laughs> bread for a really long time, but yeah, I'd, I'd choose feta. Oh, I love good feta. Hey, I, I don't know if it's like my Greek genes, but I think it's sort of a staple ingredient. Staple. In our fridge. <laughs> yeah. And what is one thing that people may not know about you? That I grew up for 22 years dancing. So um, oh. when I was a competitive dancer, yeah, choreographer, dancer, yeah, it was like a another little alternative life that I had, very creative and artsy. And at one point at university with a, a lot of the people I danced with were scientists. And at one point I was part of a Dance Your PhD competition and, yeah, we danced a whole thesis and um yeah went on youtube and that's yeah, incredible cool. i didn't yeah know <laughs> yeah it wasn't my phd it was my friend's phd but it was awesome to like fuse science and art and expression and i really felt that i got to have a really well-rounded experience at university because i had that creative side whilst i was learning Absolutely. genes and dna and microbes and all sorts of other pretty dense things sometimes to have that creative outlet so yeah you do see that a lot i think it's a great balance between sort of the sciencey side of things and then sort of the art exp- you know just being expressive and just like using different forms of mm. art to do that i mean that's the same thing where i mean i i've played piano since I was six years old and um, writing as well as like my sort of creative space too. But that brings me to wanting to know your why. So Mm. what made you specialize in fertility nutrition? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, people probably look at me and um, if you know a little bit about my me, I, I don't have children and I've, I've never tried to conceive before, so I don't have that quote-unquote personal experience of trying to conceive or struggling with trying to conceive. My passion for fertility nutrition came in, in two main ways. One was kind of backwards. I was really passionate about preventative health and preventative nutrition, and I really thought that that would be in children's nutrition and pediatrics. So I really focused my time and attention at uni and in my early years as a dietitian into pediatric health. And I I really loved peds, and I I think I was okay at it. But what I realized in that process of thinking that this was the forefront of saving people from health concerns in the future was that I was actually talking to parents and not kids. (laughs) I was kind of playing with kids to keep them occupied and and helping mum and dad and and caregivers talk to me. And what I realised was that a lot of what kids were struggling with around food in their earliest years was really tracking back to parental habits, to role modelling, to issues that were happening preconception, to what happened in pregnancy. And I already knew that that was the case. I had learned about things like DOHAD, which is Developmental Origins of Health and Disease. I'd learned about Barker's hypothesis at university. I understood the intergenerational impact that nutrition had, but nobody was really doing it in practice, like in actual clinical practice. It was all science articles, no translation into the real world. And I just had a real big heart for fertility. I was that person that was obsessed with YouTube videos, following people who were going through IVF and different ways of growing families. And I, I think that's something that's probably been embedded in my mind from a very young age as I'm an only child. So I think I'd always wondered, like, why don't I have a sibling? Was there something wrong? Like, I'd always kind of had that thought. And even though it was never really discussed or it was something that I'd witnessed in my family knowingly, 
And so, yeah, I kind of then explored pregnancy and fertility nutrition backwards from children's health. And then also that scientific lens of I did a very unique combination, I think, of subjects at university of nutrition, microbiology, physiology, genetics as well, and seeing the, the interaction between all those things and then applying that to this life stage. I just thought this is an absolute no brainer. This is the future of everybody's health. This is the next generation. And we would be so silly to not pay attention to it and not work towards it. And not even just from a fertility angle, but just preconception health and that every future parent should be paying attention to it, not just people who just the one in six now couples that may struggle with conception. So yeah, I think that's kind of where my passion came from and then accelerated by my own personal experiences with reproductive health. So yeah, I think that layering kind of effect of there was probably lots of influences from lots of different angles that got me here. And how long have you been practicing as a dietitian? I have been practicing as a dietitian for six years, seven years, around that. So I'm, I'm at the point where I'm maybe starting to lose track a little bit. Wait till you get to 16 for years. <laughs> yeah, I know. I can imagine. I was just talking about it with my friends who I graduated with the other day. I was like, oh my gosh, like I'm going to be talking about 10 year reunions soon. But yes, yeah. I've been in fertility for the last five. So exclusively. So yeah, it's, um, it's been awesome to see the field grow and people get more interested in it, more yeah. practitioners working in it. And it was pretty much me and one other person in all of Australia when I started. So it's been awesome to see it grow and expand. And maybe just to give us a bit of an idea, so what sort of patients or clients do you see at clinic in your practice? I see a lot of people who are struggling with fertility. They've gone through IVF many times. They're about to embark on IVF. And the reasons that they need IVF are varied. Some may be because themselves or their partner carry a particular genetic disease or genetic mutation that make it very hard for them to have a healthy baby. We see people with male factor infertility, poor sperm health. That's something that's definitely on the rise, 30 to 50% of cases, male factor. A lot of PCOS and insulin resistance, uh, one of the most common reproductive health conditions that can cause issues with ovulation. We see a lot of endometriosis and adenomyosis, which is a chronic inflammatory condition of the reproductive organs, but also other organs in the body that can cause issues with fertility. We also see a lot of people with thyroid dysfunction, and we see also a lot of people with absent periods due to lack of eating, over-exercising, something called hypothalamic amenorrhea, and sometimes that also comes along with eating disorders. That's probably the main ones. In addition to that, we also have like things that cross all those borders. Yeah. So we'll see people that have gut issues that come and go with that. We'll see people that have low ovarian reserve or a low AMH or we'll see people with different autoimmune diseases and things like that. So it all kind of, you'll still see people with high cholesterol and type 2 diabetes just like you would anywhere else. Mm. It's just, yeah, the focus is a bit different. It's the same but also different all at the same time. Well, now that you've brought up gut health, I'm just going to drive, mm. you know, dive straight into it. Is there a gut fertility connection? There is, we think. It's in the kind of earliest phases of understanding. And I think with the gut microbiome especially, there is just, you know, what can't it be linked to with all the research that's coming out, right? We've got so many gut gut organ axes now. And literally every field of medicine right now. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
I think for the number of cells that and the number of, you know, different functions that it can play in the body beyond digestion, exactly. uh, I think that's naturally, you know, where it's going to go. And I also think we're paying attention to it as well. <laughs> like we love to talk about it. And as a result, the research is kind of focusing on that as well. And that's great. You know, we love to see that. So we understand that perhaps the gut microbiota may have particular roles to play in some of those reproductive health conditions that I mentioned. So endometriosis and PCOS are the two that probably have the most research today. And in addition, we're also starting to learn not necessarily the gut microbiome, but the vaginal and endometrial microbiomes are very pertinent in the context of fertility and particularly infertility. So if you're struggling to conceive, you're having failed IVF transfer cycles in particular, then diving in deeper into the vaginal and endometrial microbiome seems to be something that is increasingly becoming a big focus area clinically and also in the research. And we know that people that have something called bacterial vaginosis or a dysbiosis or imbalance of the it's a very crude term, but to simplify it down, in the types of bacteria, particularly a lack of the lactobacillus species in the vaginal canal, that those people are much more likely to not have a successful IVF cycles. And by correcting the bacterial vaginosis and helping to re-nourish that uh, vaginal and endometrial microbiome, it may be particularly helpful for people going through IVF. So we're starting to see these links, yeah. um, maybe not direct, but indirect. There is also some links between, for example, people that have certain types of gut disorders and having higher rates of infertility or having even higher rates of miscarriage as well. And so that's particularly concerning whether that's a gut microbiome link, a nutrient malabsorption issue, an energy deficiency issue. We don't know. It's all kind of just association data at this point. But I think if you are somebody that has a gut health concern and you want to try to conceive, it's definitely worth paying particular attention to it and seeking advice around that because, yeah, I think that there is definitely work to be done uh, for a lot of people in that space. That's incredible. I mean, you mentioned that there are specific bacterial strains, whether they're mm. you know beneficial for, let's say, fertility or, or detrimental. Are there any sort of strains that you've come across that perhaps are not great? Oh, yes. From, yeah, okay. We don't like urea plasma in the vaginal microbiome. That is a big red flag for fertility cases. Uh, we don't like candida or thrush. Yeah. Um, and they're the big ones that we're really like. Mm. But there are also certainly other strains that can, can get in the way, the smaller ones that you need to be mindful of. So there are tests that now are being done. Um, and depending on where you go and who you get your tests from and things like that, but traditionally fertility specialists will take a endometrial biopsy. So they'll actually go into the uterus, into the lining of the womb at the right time of your cycle and take some of the endometrial lining and send that off to pathology, usually somewhere in Europe that gets sent over and they actually look at the microbiota and also the receptivity of the endometrium to an embryo. So it is, and it is very sciencey, but yeah. um, it can help particularly for people who are having IVF transfer after IVF transfer that is just not working and it's not down to the health of the embryo itself. It's not down to the health of the egg 
of the sperm. And so that's when you really want to start. Uh, look, personally, I think you should start thinking about these things sooner um, mm-hmm. because it doesn't hurt to optimise that environment. But certainly if you're somebody listening and you're in that camp of like, oh, my gosh, nothing's working, what's going on, then I definitely encourage you to have that conversation. There's also some private companies that are now doing menstrual blood-based type tests. I'm not sure on uh, precisely on the accuracy of those mm-hmm. and how, how representative they are of the, the microbiota that are in the endometrial cavity itself. But, I mean, it's not a bad proxy market potentially. So, yeah, there's definitely more clinical assessment happening in this space, which means that we can be more specific about treatment. So, sometimes it might actually mean that you do need to take an antibiotic for a bit to clear yeah. a particular infection and then restore with um, probiotics, for example. But we understand, and a lot of people may be scratching their head being like, hmm, should I be putting probiotics up there? Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In some cases, that is the case, but in a lot of cases, Cases, it's not the case. You can actually orally take probiotics. So you can take a capsule, you can eat probiotic-rich foods, and that can actually positively influence the vaginal microbiome. Even though they're not physically connected, the studies seem to show that the diet and the supplementation is enough to actually foster a positive change in the vagina. Don't ask me how it gets down there. <laughs> I don't know. I really looked hard at the research. I couldn't <laughs> find it. So it was a great question that was fielded to me on Instagram. And I went down a rabbit hole and came up with nothing. <laughs> so um, yes, so I think that's also an important clarification point for anyone for anyone that's curious about it. So yeah, I think the ones that we really get worried about are certainly urea plasma candida. If there is bacterial vaginosis, that's not not necessarily specific strains. It's just a general kind of dysbiosis, yeah. and the suppression of lactobacillus is a telltale sign that something is off. And so that's a big like one because that keeps the acidity, the pH down. So acidity up or pH down, that prevents more pathogens from populating the vagina, like thrush or urea plasma or yeast infections and things like that. And when those lactobacillus go down, the acidity doesn't go up and then we've got that opportunistic pathogens to take over. And we don't like that because that can activate the immune system. You put an embryo in at the right time or the wrong time and the immune system's activated. You can accidentally get an immune reaction to the embryo. So we don't like that. So there's all sorts of other parts of the body that need to come into play as well when we're talking about the microbiome. And we know that the gut microbiome is a site of a lot of immune function as well. So kind of all kind of links back in. Nothing is in a singular silo. You think the uterus exactly. is, you know, a separate thing, but it's all interconnected. That's exactly what I always say. You mentioned testing, right? So I just wanted to pick your brains. When you're, if you've got clients, do you call them clients or patients? I always refer to them as my clients. I call them clients. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Out of a hospital setting. But um, my question is around microbiome testing. How do you mm-hmm. help them navigate this sort of rabbit hole of, you know, inaccurate tests? Because there's a ton out there. Mm. What are your thoughts from that perspective? Thankfully, for the most part, I work really closely with a lot of fertility specialists who administer these tests pretty standardly in their practice. So I don't usually have to save anyone going down the 
you know, not so accurate kind of path. But the main case, the cause of it is not necessarily the vaginal and the uterine microbiome assessment stuff. People go down the right path. It's always the gut microbiome testing. And the conversations I always have with people, and, and this is also putting my microbiology hat on from my studies, is that the question that was always raised about microbiome testing was that using stool is perhaps not the best indicator because ultimately you have to think that's the waste product. It, you're assuming that the waste product is a representation of what's in the colon one-to-one, not necessarily like the body could be getting rid of more things or it could be holding on to more things. Or what about all the things that when exposed to air, they die? You're never going to have a picture of those So I think there's a lot of flaws there. And then the other flaw that I find is what is normal? Like if we're all as unique as a fingerprint, which is what we're understanding about the gut microbiome, who are we comparing ourselves to? For example, I have endometriosis. My gut microbiome is going to be more like somebody else who has endometriosis because we know that the gut microbiomes of people with endo seem to be similar. But then if I'm getting compared to a healthy, whoever that is, control, I'm going to look unhealthy, but maybe I'm healthy in the context of my disease. And so then you, you're pathologizing maybe something that isn't as dysfunctional. And so I guess the question comes down to function rather than phylo and, and, and the profile. Yeah. And the other one is, what are you going to do with those results? And are they, is that action so significantly different from what you would otherwise recommend from a really good history? But you can take a really good gut and digestive health focused history and in the context of everything else. And you can recommend prebiotic fiber or you can recommend trying a low FODMAP diet or you can recommend increasing fluid and fiber. I don't need a $600 test to tell me that. I can just, I can just look at your diet and look at, talk to you. Yeah. I don't need a test to confirm that. And these tests often come back and say, eat more blueberries. I'm like, I don't need a $600 test to tell me to eat more blueberries. It's silly. <laughs> Absolutely. This is exactly, I mean, you've put it so beautifully because this is exactly what we've been telling our clients. It's like in terms of translating these tests into clinical practice, I don't need something that costs an arm and a leg to let me know that you need to eat a diverse range of fibers or <laughs> more blueberries. Wow. But yeah. since we're on the topic of food right now, so let, let's just, you know, mm. take a bit of a break from the from the gut bugs and ha- talk about food and fertility. So um, when mm. we're looking at diet, how does it influence fertility? And could you walk us through some sort of the key nutrients that we need to consider if we're trying to conceive? Absolutely. So broadly speaking, from one of the largest population data sets that we have on preconception and fertility nutrition is the nurses health study in the United States, which is often referenced a lot in the science with all sorts of different health outcomes, but particularly women's health. And they showed that five dietary hallmarks seem to reduce the risk of infertility by 69%. And so that statistic emerged as one of that, you know, landmark things of like, well, it's a no-brainer not to focus on nutrition for fertility. And if you don't ovulate, that statistic actually goes up to 80%. So you're reducing your risk of infertility if you're not ovulating or not ovulating regularly by changing your diet up to 80%. But what kind of dietary changes are we talking about here? A lot of people will come to me and say, Steph, I have a healthy diet. I go to the gym. I work out. I eat my my fruit and veg and I eat my chicken at night. You know, like what you're going to tell me that's really going to change the game for me here. But 
Fertility nutrition is quite different to many other parts of nutrition. Is It becomes extremely detail-focused very quickly. And you can start with the very basics of things like we need enough folate in our diet. Everybody needs that in preconception to ensure that the cells replicate, the DNA replicates. We have a healthy neural tube. You'll find those in green leafy vegetables, lentils, avocados, strawberries, citrus fruits. Great. Everybody knows about folate really at baseline. The one that doesn't get as much attention, but it's just as important, is iodine, which is a mineral that is stored in our thyroid gland. It helps mum-to-be's thyroid gland keep up with the huge demand that will occur on that thyroid gland to produce more thyroid hormones for her and her baby. The thyroid gland can actually enlarge in 20% physically in pregnancy, and it's expected to spit out an extra 50% extra hormones. So iodine is really important, and if you don't get enough, there can be consequences to babies' intellectual development in particular. You'll find iodine in iodized salt, breads that are made with iodized salt, but particularly fish and seafood and seaweed. But both folate and iodine are recommended to be supplemented one to three months prior to pregnancy and during the duration of your pregnancy to prevent, it's just too high risk, you know, risk reward kind of ratio here. You just go, just take the supplement, nothing like in the right ranges and you'll be fine and we'll at least protect you from those things. The other ones that get lesser attention um, in like medical guidelines, but in the research have stacks of data that make them really positive, omega-3 fatty acids. So they're found in things like oily fish, so salmon, ocean trout, mackerel, sardines, anchovies, and seafood as a category in general in couples that consume it at least twice per week seem to have a significantly lower rate of infertility and they conceive a lot faster than their peers who don't eat so much seafood. Why that is, is that the omega-3s, is that the zinc, is that something else we don't know. They also seem to be having more sex and sex leads to babies, so probably that's got something to do with it too. Maybe the oysters are the aphrodisiac, I don't know. But Omega-3 fatty acids help to promote healthy blood flow, particularly to the uterine lining. We've, we know this from other studies. We also know it's quite anti-inflammatory. Inflammation is kind of not great when it comes to infertility. And as we get older, we expose ourselves to more, our egg quality starts to decline. You want to do as much as possible to protect those eggs and sperm from damage. Men are luckier because they get a little reset button every three months or so with sperm regeneration. Women, not so much. We carry them all the way through until we ovulate them. So as time goes on, things get harder and harder, generally to make a genetically normal egg. Age does affect sperm too, but just not as early as it affects for women. It is unfair and cruel part of biology but like I tell my clients, I don't have a time machine, so we just work with what we've got and we push on. Omega-3s are very important as well for the health of the baby's brain, eyes, and it seems to reduce the risk of preterm labor as well. I was going to say, just is there a differentiation between marine sources of omega-3s and plant? Yeah. So obviously, if you're vegan or allergic to fish or vegetarian or for whatever reason you'd want to have a plant-based or algae-based omega-3, then algae is the only suitable alternative to that as it will contain EPA, some EPA, but mostly 
obviously DHA, which is the long chain forms that you'll find in marine. The conversion of things like chia seeds, hemp seeds, walnuts, flax seeds from the ALA form of omega-3 to EPA and DHA, which is what we want, is only 4 to 12%. So ALA is still really like a really great fatty acid to have in your diet and, and has its own health benefits. But if you're relying on that to give you a therapeutic change, like going to change the outcome amount, you can forget it. So the marine sources dietarily and generally speaking supplementary as well is what we generally do. And yeah, there's other kind of benefits preconceptionally and in pregnancy and even postpartum. That's kind of one of those things that kind of rolls on and on with endless amounts of benefits. And there's certain subgroups within the fertility group that we hyper-focus on omega-3s for. I think a couple of other notable ones are probably choline, which again is probably newer kid on the block. Choline is a vitamin-like nutrient. It, they thought it was vitamin. They thought it was a vitamin. They got confused. We do actually make a little bit ourselves, so they got kind of taken away its vitamin status. But we just don't make enough to keep up with the amount that we're meant to have. And I think the latest statistic was like 90 to 95% of Australian women don't get enough choline in reproductive age. Choline seems to help folate do its job. So folate, B12, and choline are all kind of friends and they all like to work together. So that's an important thing. Choline independently reduces the risk of neural tube defects outside of folate status, which is something that, I don't know, people just don't talk about very much. There's a lot of focus on folate and not much conversation about choline. choline. Yeah. And then choline has this super cool ability to have a brainier baby, essentially. So there's Lots of studies now about infant and even tracking them into childhood, performing better at school, having better cognition, better behavior, things like that. So, and that is tracking back to mum using choline in pregnancy from trimesters one through three. So, about double what the government is currently recommending is where we're getting therapeutic benefits. So, it is a huge target to meet. Egg yolks are your most concentrated source of choline that are pregnancy safe. You also got them in offal and organ meats, meat, fish, dairy. Harder in plant sources, soybeans are the biggest source, but it just gets much more challenging to reach choline targets if you're mostly plant-focused. So that's then a good conversation to have. Look, if you are plant-based, plant-dominant, vegan, however you identify, if you're a plant-forward eater, is excellent for many aspects of health. From a fertility lens, there are so many gaps and the gaps are huge. So definitely see a professional because there will be some, there's undeniably always gaps that we have to fill. So definitely recommend um, if that's you. So look, I would say summary, folate, iodine, omega-3s, choline. I could go on and on, vitamin D, selenium, zinc. They're all kind of important and they all do different things, but they would be my top ones. And they independently affect fertility health but also the health of the pregnancy because I think what happens is so a lot of people, and I see this a lot with my clients, hyperfixate on the positive pregnancy test and the getting pregnant part, particularly if it's hard or it's taken a long time to get there. And I get that. That's the like 
barrier to entry to get into that pregnancy part. But the goal that we all have, that we're all working towards, is for you to have a healthy baby and a healthy pregnancy in an ideal world. Sometimes we get it and sometimes we don't. But that's what we're working towards. So when I'm planning for fertility, yes, I'm being specific about, oh, you have PCOS, I'm going to have to modify your carbohydrates and cater to your insulin resistance and your androgens and help give you things that will help with menstrual cyclicity. Okay, cool. And then, oh, your partner's also not got not the best sperm. All right, let's work on that simultaneously and do specific strategies for that. So, of course, we're doing all that. But if you're just someone listening and going, oh, I didn't know nutrition makes difference to fertility, cool. Like, what should I know about? Those things are things that you should know about, not just because of their fertility benefits, but because of the impact that's going to help have to the health of your future child. And that starts before you start trying to conceive. That DNA is going to start getting expressed and encoded preconceptionally. The epigenetic expression happens all the way through pregnancy and in the first few years of life. And they've now even extended it from first 1,000 days to first 2,000 days. And now it's up to your baby's fifth birthday and they're not a baby anymore. So, it's a long time. It's five years of a child and almost a year pregnant and, you know, between three and however many months preconceptionally until you conceive. It's a long time. So there is a lot of, I think, pressure, but I think it's positive pressure of like, hey, like, let's work on this. Let's focus on it for you, but also the health of your future family. I can imagine that a lot of couples that have struggled, that finish line is not finish line per se, but that sort of goal is to get pregnant. And you really do forget about is, you know, it's that baby. It's that, you know, the the healthy baby and that staying pregnant and having Mm -hmm. a healthy pregnancy. You mentioned, you know, if however a person wishes to identify themselves, I, I personally hate labeling the way a person eats. But when we're speaking about, let's say, plant-based or vegans, you mentioned gaps and this Mm. is where supplements might play a role. What are your thoughts when it comes to supplements? Because again, there is a lot of controversy about what supplements do we actually need Mm. um, for fertility, for those, you know, that first trimester as well. Could you perhaps walk us through what we know from a scientific perspective about supplements? Which supplements are we meant to be taking? When? For how long? Yeah, I'll give a bit of a general overview because, of course, we don't want to. I don't want to have people listen to this and then go onto <laughs> iHerb or Amazon and order a slew of things, and then yeah. next thing you know, you've got an adverse reaction or something. So, look, we actually do express supplement consults at the dietologist and and give people personalized plans because it is just so hyper individual. The fact, the things that we take into account are things like your body size, your weight is actually a significant factor into considering things like how much folate to give you. It can be up to 10 times as much depending on your weight or certain medical history factors. So if you have celiac disease, you have inflammatory bowel disease, you've had a history of a neural tube defect, you have had bariatric surgery. Those factors are all ding, ding, ding. I need to factor in more folate here because there could be a malabsorption problem. Mm. Your lab work is showing that your vitamin D is a bit low. I've got to fix that. Vitamin D is very important for fertility and, and reproductive health and also the risk of your child having autoimmune diseases and things like asthma. Um, and allergies when they're born. Iron status. If your iron is really rubbish, 
guess what? The moment you get pregnant, about 10 weeks later, it's going to be tanking even faster. So we've got to fix that. And some studies show that being anemic will inhibit ovulation. So we've got to fix that. So there's a corrective thing that we need to do. You're vegan. You haven't been taking your B12. All right, we've got to get you back on your B12 to make sure that that's there. Then there's the prenatal vitamin, which you need, I alluded to earlier, at least containing folate and iodine. Personally, we go for more of a multivitamin approach. Some people are for that. Some people are against that. Uh, you know, each to their own, but some people do the less is more. But personally, I don't resonate with that kind of approach. I don't think more is more either. I think there is the right amount. There is a Goldilocks condition. I think a lot of people under supplement. I think a lot of people over supplement. I don't think a lot of people get it right. With fertility, it's a sliding scale. There is data. It's not, uh, it's not the data that doctors like. I'll be really like, candid. It's not the data that doctors like. Doctors like this kind of data. We have 10,000 people. Half of them were put on this supplement. Half of them were put on placebo. Then they crossed over. Then we saw this perfect result of a perfect increase and everyone was safe and nothing bad happened. And the reality is supplement trials don't go like that. And certainly nutrition trials don't go like that because what the hell is a controlled diet? There isn't one. So like what's placebo diet? Just don't change anything. Don't eat. I don't know. It doesn't make sense. So ultimately, like if you're looking for that kind of data, if you're someone who's like really science or or medical focused, you're not going to find that. You have to let that part go and like readjust your expectations of what nutrition research actually really looks like in practicality. My ethos is that supplementation has a time and a place and it has to slide based on where the person's at on their journey and the cost-benefit ratio of each thing that you're adding in. The cost being, is there an adverse side effect? Is it a high-cost supplement? Is there a potential negative that we need to factor in? Is it interacting with something that they're already taking that's a higher priority? Lots of different things. Is it really relevant? Like you can, I could supplement somebody 20 things if I really wanted to based on some of the but I don't because they would rattle when they walk. It's not practical. It's not sensible. It's it's not the right thing to do. So you look at the case and you go, okay, what I'm seeing is you're having a lot of trouble with implantation, got a lot of endometriosis going on. That's an inflammatory condition. We're going to look at things that are anti-inflammatory. We're going to look at the prenatal vitamin. We're going to look at things that support the uterine lining. We're going to make sure that there's a probiotic there that's focused on the vaginal microflora to make sure that that environment is optimized. And when the moment you get pregnant, we pull the pin on all of those things. Yeah. We take all those things out and we simplify down the plan into, uh, into pregnancy because A, you can't tolerate it. B, you don't need it. If you see someone who's been trying to conceive for 15 years, they're willing to do the supplements. If you see someone who hasn't even started trying yet, they're like, oh, just give me what I need to get by. And so that's the sliding scale is how long they've been in the game for, how long they've been spending time, energy and money on this, and how much detail do I have about their history to actually give a a customised and kind of scientific approach. And sometimes I just say to people, you don't have to take this if you don't want to. It's a consideration and here's why I've recommended it. It's up to you. Do what you want. You want to take it? Fine. Here's how to take it. Here's the safety. Here's what not to do. You don't want to take it? Also fine. Fine. So I do, how I do it is a ranking system. I do essential, non-negotiable. You have to take a prenatal vitamin. Sorry. Your vitamin D is in the floor. You need to take vitamin D. Non-negotiable. Here's your considerations and I've ranked them based on your situation as to what I think is the most relevant and most evidence, most impactful. And then we go down the list. Most people, honestly, that come to see me take the whole lot because in for a penny, in for a pound is kind of the mentality a lot of these people have. If you are somebody who's spending ten to $15,000 Australian on a cycle of IVF hoping you get pregnant, it's 
spending a little bit of extra money and or time on supplementation and your diet doesn't feel like as big of an ask. And it's also, I think, empowering for a lot of people to take back some of that control and feel like they're, they may be having a tangible impact. And I don't, not the kind of practitioner that makes any promises like do my program for 12 weeks and you'll get pregnant or your money back. Like I'm not, I'm no scam artist there. Everybody is very different. What I'm saying here is a lot of people don't want to look back and think, what if, what if I took the vitamin E? What if I took the probiotic? What if I did something different? And ultimately, I'm here to give you options, the science, and help you make this informed decisions. I'm not the one taking it for you. So that's my ethos. I know some people don't agree with that ethos. Some people very food-first approach. But I also see a lot of flaws in that, particularly in this arena where the risk, the impact is high. So you have to get out of that food-only approach. Food first and a food only approach are two very different things. I think a lot of dietitians say food first when they actually mean that they're food only. And I think that's where you get shot in the foot in fertility and pregnancy. And I also think it's a lack of confidence as well. Some clinicians just don't feel confident prescribing supplements. They don't know it well and it freaks them out, which is fair enough. It is a bit scary when you start. But there's resources out there and there's people out there who can support and guide you to top skill in that. And there's and if you're a listener who's thinking, oh, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm staring at Amazon or I'm staring in the pharmacy and I don't know what I'm looking at, you're not meant to. Like you don't have a biochemistry degree and a nutrition degree (laughs) to sit there and work out what the heck magnesium glycinate is and if you need 20 milligrams or 200 milligrams. That's our job. Let us do that for you. You don't have to stress about it. You're about to potentially embark on becoming a parent. You've got enough decisions to make and things to worry about. Don't worry about that part. Give it to somebody else to do, somebody that you trust and, and is credible and get them to do it instead. Look, I think what you've just said is absolutely incredible because, again, this highlights that dietitians are actually the pioneers of personalized nutrition and not these sort of scam artists that are coming right now with all these crazy, you know, like fancy gadgets and gizmos that are selling things just to show you how essential all these well, unessential gadgets are when it comes to personalized nutrition. And I feel like this whole, you know, again, when it comes to supplementation, I always call it, I'm very strategic. It's strategic supplementation. Looking at a the field of medicine or like the the specialization i mean again you know there's really not one size fits all approach there are certain Mm. conditions especially let's say in gastroenterology when i'm working with a lot of my clients i say with inflammatory bowel disease and so on and Mm. it's a very different arena just like you mentioned especially when it comes to supplementation and we're lucky enough to have you know an excellent network of, of specialists and even labs that we work with just to you know test instead of guessing you know this is how i define what strategic supplementation and as just like you said depending on on the condition that you have. So yes, it still is a very controversial topic, but I'm very, very happy personally with your approach. I do agree with it. And I mean, you also mentioned about, you know, when it came to probiotic supplements, how do you approach that? So are there sort of specific strains when it comes to the supplements or are you on more of the multi-strain approach when it comes to probiotic supplements? Yeah, I think it a little bit depends on the history, but we have less options because we have less data. So there haven't been many great probiotic interventional trials done on fertility cases yet. So it's like more of an assumption and corrective approach, which is not my favorite way to go about it, but it's like a cover your base kind of yeah. scenario. It's not to the point where we can be hyper-personalized with probiotic strains. We know that we want to be boosting the lactobacillus, acidophilus, crispatus, all those kinds of ones, rhamnosus GG, all those kinds of strains. So we focus on those. But we usually do a blend of like a women's health focus 
focused or if there's particular history of particular concerns that we sometimes do other single strains and add those in. So it really just depends. The other thing with probiotics is now it's recommended to discontinue in pregnancy, not to continue. We used to recommend probiotics pretty routinely in pregnancy to help reduce the risk of eczema in the baby and take it whilst mum was in late pregnancy and into breastfeeding. But there has been some links now, which, I mean, I've dived into this research very deeply, but the summary was was that there seems to be some increased risk of preeclampsia in people who were at risk of developing gestational diabetes who were taking probiotics, whether that's causation or association, we don't know. But it was enough given that how serious preeclampsia can be in pregnancy and it can lead to severe early births and, you know, a significant trauma to both the mother and the baby that we kind of made a collective decision within our practice to discontinue standard use of probiotics in pregnancy, but very safe to use preconceptionally and postpartum whilst breastfeeding. That's not a problem. It's just in pregnancy that we recommend now discontinuing use. And some people still continue to do it because they want the benefit to eczema and allergies and are willing to, if they're low risk for preeclampsia, they're willing to take it. So, Again, personal risk profile tolerance levels is going to come into it as well, but that's something that we've had to recently change in the last few years. I'd be curious to see a lot more data, and I actually looked at all the peripheral data before that when that Cochrane review came out, and it was fairly mixed. But um, certainly foods that are rich in probiotics like yogurt and kefir seem to be extremely beneficial in pregnancy, and we don't recommend avoiding those foods like you should consume them in pregnancy and they seem to actually reduce the risk of preeclampsia. So it's changing all the time. One day you're recommending probiotics, the next minute you're sending an email saying, stop your probiotics, you know. So uh, this is science. Ultimately, we only work with the best information we have at any given point in time. That's what I always say, like the science is always evolving, and this is, you know, a a big part of what we do is just keeping up with the science and, you know, understanding mm-hmm. how to translate that into practice. Now, to pick your brains when it comes to the last part of a conversation today, when it comes to mm-hmm. this whole gut hormone connection, right? So I, I've personally been speaking a lot about the gut hormone connection, especially looking at, you know, how sex hormones impact our gut in the realm of symptoms experienced and how our gut microbiome plays a role when it comes to regulating hormones. I've covered all of this. So in terms of the science, if anyone's interested in the second episode of the season, but Perhaps what I wanted to discuss is how do conditions such as, let's say, PCOS or endometriosis mm. impact gut health and um, vice versa? Yeah, I absolutely love this question. It's one of my like little, oh, like it, my little brain, like you scratch the right place. It makes me so happy. I love, love, love this because like I, like I alluded to, I was obsessed with capital O with microbiology at university. I nearly like almost considered like quitting dietetics and going down microbiology route. And I love talking about like endo and PCOS as well. And I have lived experience with endometriosis. So there's there's all this like, oh, it just scratches that real good part. So with the gut hormone access, so as you've obviously alluded to before, the gut microbiome and particular gut microbiota within that gut microbiome can produce a particular enzyme called beta-glucuronidase, which can conjugate already deconjugated estrogen. And so that sex hormone can actually go back into circulation. Now, why do we care about that? Estrogen is one of the hormones that helps regulate our menstrual cycle. 
in conditions like endometriosis, for example, we know that it's an estrogen-linked disease in the sense that endometriosis can both respond to and produce estrogen. It is not a universal truth that every single individual who has endometriosis will also have high estrogen, but it is a common clinical observation. It's not an automatic assumption, but it is common. And so the gut microbiome seems to be distinctly different in people with endometriosis. They seem to have a lot more proteobacteria, enterobacteriaceae, and streptococcus and E. coli, and they have fewer lactobacillus. And that is reflected as well in the vaginal and endometrial microbiome. So they almost mirror each other, which is that gut kind of vaginal connection, which is super interesting too. And so if that estrogen keeps, you know, getting deconjugated by the liver, transported to the gut, and ready to be pooped out, but your bowels aren't moving enough, or you have a lot of microbes in your gut that produce beta glucuronidase and go on to reactivate that estrogen. I always liken it to like you build the Jenga tower or the Lego tower and the little toddler comes and knocks it over just as you're about to put final block on. Then you have to go through the whole cycle again. Now, for some people that can then irritate their symptoms, mess with their menstrual cycle and so on and so forth. So it's actually really important to make sure that your bowels are moving regularly, staying hydrated, eating lots of plant foods, getting your dietary fiber, having your fermented foods if you tolerate them, get enough sleep. Don't eliminate things unnecessarily to compromise your dietary diversity, all those things, and potentially consider things like probiotics, for example. All those things are important and relevant when it comes to gut health. And the same, not the exact same rules apply, but the same kind of emergence of information about the gut microbiota and the gut hormone connection is starting to emerge in PCOS as well, because we know that in PCOS, it's almost like we're caught in a loop and our body just doesn't get that opportunity opportunity to ovulate. And part of that loop is an excess of estrogen that then gets shunted to make androgens. And so again, going back to the same mechanism of that gut hormone axis is that if your body keeps on regenerating more estrogen from the gut because it's not leaving by the back door, if you know what I mean, then we're going to help keep that loop caught and you won't get to that point of being able to ovulate, not going to get the opportunity to potentially conceive, not going to get a menstrual cycle, not going to get the progesterone rising. And in PCOS, if you're caught in that loop for an excessively long period of time, more than 90 days, you can increase your risk of endometrial hyperplasia, which is an over-thickening of the womb lining or the endometrium that can increase your risk of endometrial cancer. So it's very important if you have PCOS, you have really irregular cycles that you speak to your medical professional if you're not getting a period every 90 days because they may need to actually medically induce a bleed with medication, typically progesterone, to help the lining shed for that reason. So that's really important. And interestingly, both of these groups, the PCOS and the endo people, all report much higher levels of gut symptoms. So in endometriosis, is actually staggering some of these stats. So I'm going to share them with you all. 85% of people presenting with endometriosis have a digestive complaint. 65% report some constipation, 43% report diarrhea, and 41% report symptoms of nausea and of vomiting, and 50% will also have a diagnosis of irritable bowel syndrome or IBS. And also people with endo are much higher risk of having celiac disease and Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. So gut health and endo, 
the Venn diagram is Venn diagramming. You know, it's almost two circles on top of each other. So that's a really interesting area. And I think something that's been denied a lot in endometriosis for a long time, oh, the gut symptoms, that's just IBS over here and the endometriosis over there. But they're inherently extremely linked via the gut microbiome, by the fact that endometriosis growing on or in the bowel, we can't deny that that's not having an impact on gut symptoms. So and a whole host of other mechanisms too. In PCOS, we also see a much higher rate of irritable bowel syndrome, up to about 40%. And we're starting to learn as well that PCOS has almost like a gut microbiome signature as well. Not as good with like glucose metabolism, glucose regulation, more those metabolic things, inflammatory things, similar endometriosis, inflammatory markers and things like that. So we're starting to understand almost like these little clouds of particular bacteria and microbes or trends or groups of things that seem to be coming to the fore. How we modify them clinically to make a significant impact. We haven't gotten to the point of really good interventional trials on this. We're starting to get some of them, some probiotic trials in PCOS, and we're going to start seeing them with endo now too after these studies from 2020, I'm sure. But it's hard. It's a complex system because everybody's baseline, while they may be more similar to each other, is still going to be different and how they respond to each of those things is going to be different. And then layer on top that, you know, your diet is likely to change too. So it is really, really tricky stuff to study and get real precise on it. But, you know, I think we just need probably more numbers and more studies, and more participants and all that kind of stuff to get that real high resolution yeah. picture. But it's fascinating. And I mean, in practice, you know, we apply all these things and look at symptoms and, and design personalized plans around those as well. So it doesn't stop us just because we don't have that, you know, high resolution picture of exactly what intervention works. We know the principles and we know the foundations that work and we can apply them and try them and refine them as we go. I just want to give you a big hug because you've just said, I mean, you just put that brilliantly. And I think so in practice and clinic, this is probably anecdotal and stats aside, but being specialized in gastroenterology. So I start off with, let's say, you know, my clients with celiac disease and then the endometriosis. Like you, I do see that a lot with endo and celiac disease together coexisting. But the other thing that you mentioned is, you know, having conclusive data, having conclusive studies. Now, we females have been under-researched anyway. So like for us to wait until all the science comes out, I do know though there is more funding going into endo at the moment, endo and gut health as well. Just, you know, having discussions with different gut health charities that are responsible for funding as well. So that's another area that, you know, I cannot wait to sort of watch this space to see what comes out. Gosh, I can sit here for another hour picking your brains. But um, look, before we close off the podcast, I would love for you to share your three personal gut health habits. Ooh. Well, I'm going through a bit of a rough time with my own gut at the moment. So what a time to ask me these questions, Sandra. Perfect timing. So my gut health habits, my three, are I drink a lot of water every day, probably two and a half to three litres when I'm active. It's also summer here in Australia. So we be sweating, you know, so we got to replace. So that helps me a lot as well as I've been implementing some bowel massage as per my pelvic physio's advice. And I've been trying to help things along because I have, as my endometriosis progressed, my gut motility really struggles and slows down. 
And so I'm kind of going through that at the moment. And I will just tag team as kind of part B to that rather than three is I'm also using an elevation of my feet when I use the bathroom as well Mm -hmm. so that my knees are above my hips and that my legs are spread. My knees are far apart from each other and I lean forward and that really helps with my pelvic floor to allow myself a more comfortable a more comfortable toilet visit. You know, we're going down into the details here, everybody. And then my third is really focusing on, for me, insoluble fiber. So I'm eating a lot more things like raspberries and passion fruit and corn, popcorn and the husky bits of fruit and vegetables to help get things moving. And I actually recently tracked my fiber just to make sure I was doing as good as I thought I was because I knew One of the my numbers. doctor was going to get up me about it and I was ready with the numbers and it was like 39 grams per day. So I was like, well done don't worry about it I was like I'm doing great thank you sir um so yeah I always used to get so annoyed every time I'd go to the doctor and they'd be like sir are you eating enough fiber like I'm a dietitian myself I don't need you to tell me Uh, I know what I'm doing I was like I'm actually stuck that's why I'm here I've done all that I've done the probiotics I've done it all I'm actually think medically I need help (laughs) And so, like, I'm saying this as a dietitian who works in this space, like, there are points, sticking points where sometimes you just literally need medical help and that is okay. Like, sometimes people go the medical help first and then find out about nutrition, you know, years later. So, you know, obviously I do the reverse. um, But, yeah, it's fine. There's no shame in needing medical support for your gut health and I'm sure you and your dad can attest to that too. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, look, I've I've absolutely loved having you on here and – where can our listeners find you? Yes, come hang out with me. So I am on Instagram at, at the underscore dietologist and also at endo.dietitian. I have two accounts because I am crazy like that. So if you want endo-only <laughs> content, go to endo.dietitian. If you want general fertility, reproductive health, pregnancy, all-encompassing content, go to The Dietologist. You can find our website, thedietologist.com.au, and you can search for our podcast, Fertility Friendly Food. And there's about 130 episodes there. There is quite a few gut health episodes. So I would really, if you want gut health content, yes, there is a lot there. And we have a lot of blogs on our website about gut health and their links, including the gut hormone access, which I think I published in like 2019. So maybe I was ahead of the curve there. (laughs) Look at you. I'll definitely be adding these to the show notes anyway. But Stephanie, thank you. It has been an absolute pleasure. And um, I hope to have you on here again. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Sandra. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Gastroenterologist and His Daughter podcast. Don't forget to join us again. And if you've been enjoying our chats, make sure you subscribe, follow, or leave a review on your chosen platform.